Hello there, and welcome to Brain for Business, your podcast for all things brain, behavioral, and organizational sciences. It's great to have you with us. As always, to listen back to past episodes, make sure to check out our website, brainforbusiness.ie, and feel free to drop us a note via the website with any comments, feedback, or even questions that you might have. I am delighted to be speaking today to Vlad Glavenu of Dublin City University. Vlad is a full professor of psychology in the School of Psychology at Dublin City University and professor at the Centre for the Science of Learning and Technology at the University of Bergen in Norway. Vlad's work focuses on creativity, imagination, culture, collaboration, wonder, possibility and societal challenges. He has edited a number of books, including the Palgrave Handbook of Creativity and Culture and the Oxford Creativity Reader, co-edited the Cambridge Handbook of Creativity Across Domains and the Oxford Handbook of Imagination and Culture. Separately, he has authored The Possible, a Sociocultural Theory, Creativity, a Very Short Introduction, and Wonder, the Extraordinary Power of an Ordinary Experience. He has also authored or co-authored more than 200 articles and book chapters in these areas. Vlad has also received the Berlin Award from the American Psychological Association Division 10 for outstanding early career contributions to the field of aesthetics, creativity, and the arts. Vlad is, amongst other things as well, the founder and president of the Possibility Studies Network that brings together academics, researchers, and practitioners from centers, laboratories, or societies dedicated to the study of human possibility, its antecedents, processes, limitations, and consequences. Vlad, welcome to Brain for Business. Thank you so much for the invitation. So let's start with hopefully the simple question. What is possibility studies? Ah, a simple yet deceivingly simple question. Possibility studies um, is an emerging field. It is um, both quite new, but also very old. If we think, you know, historically about these questions around human possibility, they're probably as old as any any other question, isn't it, about about humanity. But um, it emerged in the past uh, five years or so as a community of, of scholars from across disciplines. This is one of the key characteristics. It's truly transdisciplinary, who um, I like to say, they, we, we like to look at the forest instead of each and every tree. For instance, as you uh, very nicely put about my work, I, I work a lot on creativity, and that's a huge tree, big branches, a lot of a lot of aspects. But um, without getting ever bored to study creativity, I thought, well, what is the connection with other fields like imagination or serendipity or wonder or innovation or utopias and dystopias, things that are kind of far away from the thinking of a creativity research but at the same time, they share these kernels of of, um, of commonality, if you want. So possibility studies is really about building bridges between literatures and practices that get us to the core of how we live as human beings, which is always a bit in the realm of the of the possible. And I guess also a bit in the realm of the, the philosophical and, and, and quite quite reflective and deep and meaningful in, in a lot of ways. But that's our hope. I mean, we, we do want, we bring together philosophy, of course, anthropology, psychology as a, a big role, but also the arts and also the natural sciences, of course. You know, humanities and social science is a privileged field for understanding human possibility. But at the end of the day, it is a lot of the technological that contributes to what we understand as possibility. So the dialogue is very broad and uh, there is always this friction, but a productive friction <laughs> between scholars and domains and, and the questions we ask. You mentioned their creativity, but but how then does possibility studies differ from other fields such as innovation, creativity, 
or perhaps even futurism and future studies? Right, that's a lovely question. So I'm, I'm going to take creativity because I am asked this question. So you're a creativity scholar, now do possibility, what is the difference? So um, every one of these domains, I, I mentioned creativity, imagination, we can, we can take them in turn if you want, but it would be a very long time. Um, they, they focus on aspects of what it means to engage with the possible. So the possible in very simple terms, you know, we all live in the here and now of immediate experience. We, we are situated somewhere. We, we have a universe of things around us. But at the same time, we can kind of engage with what is not in the here and now. So just the act of remembering is an act of engaging with something that is absent. But then we go further and we imagine. And as we we know from psychology and neuroscience, remembering and imagining actually are very closely connected. So bringing into our experience of the here and now, the not yet here, the elsewhere, the nowhere, this is the, the heart of possibility. So creativity per se, if we take just that field, you know, the, the scientific definition is coming up with ideas, products, outcomes that are at the same time novel, surprising to some extent, original, and useful or appropriate. Now, when we engage with possibility, sometimes we don't need a product. I mean, there is a whole experience of trying to understand, envision things. We don't need to to make or create something or propose or communicate it. So creativity deals with those possibilities that end up being evaluated as novel and useful by a community at a certain moment in time. So it's kind of, for me, possibilities is the umbrella, and then all these other fields are, are bigger or smaller sectors of, of, of that huge uh, terrain. Because I guess as well, that idea of imagination, and, and of course you need to imagine something in order to be able to, to, to create it or, or, or maybe to, to, to muddle your way towards something. But the same in that sense, possibly with, with possibilities to, to think or see possibilities, you have to imagine them. Absolutely. And imagination, uh, you know, sheds light, especially on the kind of internal dynamic, the psychological dynamic of things, including like creativity. So the focus is on how we combine, associate ideas and images. Why not? I mean, that's the root of imagination um, to fashion, you know, things that don't exist and kind of envision them in our mind and create those possibilities. Creativity is about the act of making. Innovation is about the act of implementing that change and seeing it through and kind of changing institutions or society with that. So it's kind of pieces of the puzzle. And although I don't want to say, well, this is the beginning, this is the process, that's the end, because of course, there, there are, you know, ways of, of talking about that. Um, I, I do think that the bigger picture is only when we, we lift our, our eyes and we see this, the forest, as I said, of, of possibility. But I guess the, the thing that strikes me, particularly when we're talking, and just to, to stay with imagination for a moment, is the way that sometimes it's that, that shared imagination that can help people take that step from maybe one person or a number of people having a creative idea and taking it through to an actual innovation, which, as you said, is developed and maybe implemented or possibly put into the market as a saleable product or service. Right, right. So there is there, there, there are stages and phases and there are moments in which the imagination is very important, especially in the sense of diverging, going in different directions. And then there are stages at which, you know, you have to have social skills, like persuading people is, is very important or creating this idea, you know, this enthusiasm. That's why, for instance, um, surprise and curiosity and wonder are also part of this forest of possibility and they speak to 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 kind of this joint 
interest that 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 you need to build you know this enthusiasm for things but yes imagination can be an engine for that um there there are all sorts of other processes psychologically that we talk about like divergent thinking is one of them when you come up with with a series of ideas um a lot is made of association you know everything we create is is actually never completely new is always built on on existing experience and that's actually you know coming full circle an important lesson for possibility studies they're not the opposite of that is not reality studies because the possible and the real are completely intertwined you know as a psychologist again if you look at theories of perception which is perception connects us to the here and now to the immediate there are bottom-up and top-down theories meaning that there are some people who believe that the, the sensorial input you know the, the things we receive from the environment are crucial which they are but there also there's a lot of research showing that our expectations shape a lot of what we perceive so we basically infuse possibility into the reality of what is around us we never see things exactly the same way think about affordances for instance right it's that and that is a line of study in, in perception theory um, the affordances that jump out you know the possibilities of acting with stuff are different from a child from an adult from someone living in Romania or Ireland or Australia and so on so I think from the most basic principles reality and possibility are are intertwined and we shouldn't drastically you know dramatically separate them I guess though that also highlights a potential issue in the sense that if we are too grounded in our reality, whatever that might be, then we might also be limiting the possibilities that we can perceive and understand. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's a matter of functional fixedness, isn't it? It's a matter of, um, for me, going back to possibility, I, I also have my own theory, by the way, about the possible. So I'm going to briefly mention you know, that the, the heart of it is this idea of multiplicity of perspectives. It's the idea that we live in a perspectival world, every object, idea, oneself, right? We can always approach that thing or a person or from multiple points of view, from multiple perspectives. And these open up new possibilities of, of thinking. So uh, a glass of water is not only a glass of water. If you need to make music, you might find a way to do that. If you need to teach geometry, you might find a way to do that. Nothing is intrinsically only one thing. So that is really at the basis of, of possibility thinking or the possible, uh, you know, in, in my view. So I think exactly as you said, you know, reality constrains us and it's a matter of repositioning ourselves. How do we de develop that new perspective, that alternative point of view? That is the crucial question for me of, of possibility studies, yeah. And for any, any listeners who aren't familiar with the term, you, you mentioned their functional fixedness, which is very much about that idea of a glass of water is a glass of water, you drink it and that's it. Whereas it might be, as you said, a musical instrument, it might be a whole range of different things. Exactly, exactly. Being trapped in, in singular ways of understanding the world. And these are very efficient. I mean, don't get me wrong. Uh, nobody contests the, the role of coming into a meeting room and not questioning immediately, what is that? What, what can you do with it? It's a chair. You can sit on it. It's, it's efficient. But it's not as efficient as when we allow ourselves and, and even purposefully allow ourselves to to just go beyond, move beyond what is. You know, a, a lot of what makes life exciting and what makes us healthy psychologically, you know, and even physically has to do with dwelling in the possible. There are limits to that. We might come to talk also about the darker side of possibilities, you know, um, because you can also torment yourself with thinking what could have been. You know, there is a lot of work on counterfactual thinking, which is exactly about thinking about alternative versions to what has happened, counter the fact, you know, it's counter counterfact. 
um, that that actually showed that you can become quite depressed and anxious if you if you keep imagining how a bad event could have been done differently. So there is not always towards the positive, but I think at, at the at the heart of being human, uh, without being too species, I know there there are many people who you know they they, they want to decenter a bit of the, the the this idea of uniqueness, and I'm all with that. But at the heart of human experience, there is this experience of yourself as an open project, um, as as kind of intrinsically agentic. Uh, agency might be an illusion. We might not have free will, but the belief that we do have agency, that changes everything for us, doesn't it? I guess so. And as you're talking there, I'm thinking of of a young child who who, who is told and, and believes that they can do anything. They can be an astronaut. They can be a carpenter. They can be a surgeon. They can be a whatever. But as we get older, yeah. we start to maybe take on other people's limitations on, on ourselves or maybe place limitations on ourselves based on experience or, or testing and trying the boundaries. And, and I guess that can interfere with possibility as well. Absolutely. I mean, there, there is an optimum of possibilities, and isn't there? Like if you go to a supermarket and you want to buy whatever product and you have 50 versions, you, you will get a bit uh, annoyed at some point. Maybe you'll just make a quick decision, right? So what fascinates me also is this idea of constraints and possibility. You, you can't have one without the other. Going back to the story of creativity, you know, one of the, the main ways people think about it is thinking outside of the box. That's really important. But do we ever think fully outside of the box? I mean, language is a box of Words. Uh, we, we just need to think in bigger boxes to vary, to shift. You, you never can exist completely out of constraints. So coming back to your point, absolutely, that there is something that is easily squashable, sadly, in terms of human development when, when, when people imagine themselves to be this and that. But at the same time, facing the challenge is also very formative for how you create possibilities that are likely to happen and not only, you know, fantastic possibilities. So I, I think there is always an interesting balance, isn't there, between reality and possibility between constraints and creativity and we just need to learn to navigate that and I guess it is a healthy process because I guess if, if someone you know t- take a uh, t- take a teenage male who might love basketball and might want to have a career as a professional basketball player if they're only five foot tall 150 whatever centimeters I'm really sorry, but chances are you're not going to make it. So, But that's a healthy realization. And then you can transform that passion into God knows what productive other thing. Absolutely. Um, you know, in, in psychology, we also have this other term, self-efficacy. That is a very important uh, concept. It means the belief that you can do something. You know, you can have a global self-efficacy in, in terms of your profession. You're confident you can manage most situations. Or you can have very specific. So I have um, quite, hopefully, some self-efficacy when it comes to creativity, uh, but not so much with mathematics I have to I have to be honest but uh, so it can be quite local now self-efficacy is not fantasy thinking you know it has to it has to be realistic to some point but it always has to leave that that zone of development you know one of the big thinkers in in my area is Vygotsky who who talks about the zone of proximal development I love this notion it's the gap between what you think you can do and you can do in the moment and what you could do with just a little bit of support from peers from culture from you know even technology there is there is always this zone in which we it's a zone of immediate growth and i think when we think about what we could do when we tell young people what they can or they cannot do we have to be mindful of that zone and what happens to it i'm taken as well by the uh, the, the point you alluded to 
uh, that's sometimes referred to as the paradox of choice, mm. that when we're presented with too many choices, we can just almost end up saying it's too much. How does that play out then in terms of possibility studies? Because surely, if I understand it correctly, possibility studies should be in favor of lots of different options, lots of possibilities. Right. Oh, that's a beautiful question. So indeed, you see, I love to think of the possible as multiplicity. So there, there is always, as, as long as you have two, you have this binary, you already entered the field of multiplicity. But of course, instead of dichotomies, it's better to think with the third, the thirdness, and, and then multiply. But I, that's an excellent point, and it's good to make it. You know, we shouldn't romanticize the possible. More is not always better. I think that the, the basic reality is that we do consider alternatives even if they're more limiting, and that can be helpful. So recently, and this is a work in progress, you know, I'm, I've been starting to think about possibility spaces, and I'm, I'm starting to think about the number of perspectives that we bring to a problem or a situation and the depth of those perspectives, because both of these are very important. And if you think in these two by two, you get these quadrants that are quite interesting. You know, you can think narrow, but in depth. You can think widely, but superficially, and so on. And my the, the, the way this theory is going, and I'm accumulating evidence for it, is that all these quadrants can be useful. All of them can be adaptive. It's just a matter that Sadly, in education and society, the very wide and in-depth, you know, kind of building alternative worlds, and we have been systematically disconsidering that. So I think we are, we're, we're a bit bad at going wide and going in-depth uh, more than we should be. But otherwise, it's always adapting to context as well. So if, if you have something quick to do, if you start wondering and pondering, you might never do anything. That's, that's actually, just to, to finish off, because I do work on wonder, as you mentioned, um, that's a beautiful story about wonder you know the 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 philosopher Thales I think he he has this there's this uh, myth that he was walking with this woman beside him and he was looking at the stars and wondering and then he fell into a hole in the ground you know and this person he was walking with made fun of him because while you were contemplating the stars you, you didn't mind the reality just in front of you so there are limits to that and I'm, I'm fascinated by exploring um, optimal possibilities let's call them that but isn't that, again, when we talk about optimal possibilities, going back to the eye of the beholder? And, and particularly if you go beyond, say, contemplation and, and into you know, what might be, and I don't mean this to be at all denigrating, but what might be called, say, practical application of innovation or something where actually you need to think about those things. Right. Yeah. No. I. You know. The, the, there is the the whole spectrum, isn't it? You. You have. You have. Um, what I like to call the possible with the small p and the capital P. And I think that uh, a lot of people talk about pragmatic possibilities. So there is, because you mentioned future studies, it's a, a huge area of possibility studies. But it's not the only one that's interesting, because we we put all the possibility into the future. But actually, the present and even the past holds a lot of possibilities. Reimagining what was and so on. So pragmatic possibility and pragmatic prospection, that's a theory developed by some colleagues, is really about what is most likely to happen. And, and there is a lot of literature done on, on forecasting and, and what's possible, you know, what's what's likely. It's huge. But then even in that literature, you have foresight. So forecasting is what's likely, but foresight is, is imagining the unlikely, but multiplying things that could happen and that prepares you much better. You kind of need both. What do we do without a weather forecast? I mean, forecasting is great, but, but without foresight in terms of, uh, you know, open AI, that you need foresight there. You cannot just go on, on, on forecast because there is no one, one consequence you're modeling. So I think in terms of literacy, you know, we talk a lot about the future's literacy, but in terms of possibility literacy, you need this 
skills to look at the, the narrow and the wide and, and to understand past, present and future together. You mentioned earlier on uh, some of the limits of possibility studies. Where would you perceive them, both in, in, in practical but also in, in I, I guess, sort of more a- academic terms? Why, right. What is the what is the barrier? What is the not the, the barrier, the boundary of possibility studies? Well, at the moment, it is very much growing, and I think. Um, I think that the core question that, that we all, whether we study agency, creativity, imagination, and so on, innovation, are dealing with is understanding how we become aware of possibilities, how we explore, and how we enact or decide not to enact specific options, alternatives, perspective possibilities, right? So that is, there is a unifying question. Now, I, I'm a firm believer that, you know, transdisciplinarity is the way forward. I think in, in the future, more and more we'll see education and, and everything organized around challenges and issues rather than, than just domains. So I, I do believe that if you take these guiding questions, then the boundaries become malleable. It, you know, you, you, you can, again, collaborate with engineering a lot to, to discuss this as well as you would do with philosophy. But at the moment, at least, uh, my hope for this community is that we, we would get more outside of psychology. I think psychology is very well represented. And, and for a good reason because psychology is so diverse as it is enormously you know there there are people their colleagues within psychology i would have less maybe in common to talk about than than some colleagues in sociology let's say i'm a social psychologist by by training so it's very diverse but i i think that the limit at the moment or the challenge is to make it really inclusive because when people come with such different ways of thinking you bring in the design or arts you know all these um you have to adapt your way of thinking and this is something that we talk about as possibility studies so it's kind of applying our own, you know, putting, putting our own theory into practice. If we then think about the, the, the practical aspect, how, how can you kind of, or how can, can could someone, how could one uh, put some of the insights from possibility studies into to practice? And I'm thinking, for example, of, of, of innovation or, or other areas. Has that step been taken yet? Right. Well, because the field is is new and old, as I said, at the same time. So you can look at it in two ways. You can look at it as uh, all this research done in, in these different areas that already exists and has been applied. You know, creativity has a lot to offer to business and, and applied fields. Innovation, of course, it comes a lot from there. You can take those and try to see, is there something we could learn? Let's say that I am a design, you know, experience design type of uh, person. And I, I know a lot about user innovation, okay? But then, I mean, I'm interested in, in futures uh, all of a sudden. I, I realize that users, not you know, they're, they're fundamentally future-oriented. That's an insight that combines, you know, a lot of work that is and is applied to another type of work that is and is applied. But I might not come across it because it's, it's a lot of it might be in, in, in I don't know, literature, fiction. Who knows, you know? So then I think the value of it is to develop new methods and ways of thinking. I, I was just mentioning now utopias in, in some ways. So narrative, storytelling. Of course, there are so many pockets of business organizational psychology that know the value of that. But there is so much more that can be done with them. So in a way, it's kind of taking what we do and amplifying it. And in other ways, it's really discovering completely new territory. And that's the exciting part. You know, what, what are we missing uh, if we put all the pieces of this puzzle together? And is there also a role for a translator, if, mm. if you like, someone who can take all these ideas and actually, without wanting to dumb them down, but package them in a way that is accessible 
Right, absolutely. And and I think, you know, we can all be, I try to be my own translator at times, you know, I, I don't know how successfully, but I, I um, for instance, to give you one concrete example, like if we really talk concretely, right, I'm, um, I'm personally fascinated by perspectives and affordances. So perspectives are points of view in, you know, kind of how we approach the world. It's not only an idea, but like an orientation. Now, if I approach a chair as an object I sit on, that's my perspective about what chairs are. But then there are affordances. There are not purely Im embedded in the chair, but they talk to the material properties of a chair. Like I could sit in it, but I don't know, uh, maybe a giant could not sit in it, it would just break, right? So the affordance is, is it, it depends on who is the user. So perspective and affordance need to come together. So one model that I tend to use and might be useful to some listeners is to think in every situation about the would, could, and should of the situation. So you have the woulds are the intentions, the perspectives you come with, the, the coulds are a little bit about affordances, what is materially, physically possible. And the shoulds are the cultural normative aspects. And what interests me is to understand the tensions, you know, when, when you could do something if only you would see it, because culturally it's very much okay, normatively it's okay, and there are moments when you have to push the boundaries. So you can develop these kind of practical frameworks, and then when you have a problem, you can help people map up what what are your intentions, what are the you know the forces you notice, and what are the constraints, and then and then try to do things like I don't know bracket one of them or amplify one of them or or pretend you know uh, add add another one that doesn't exist just to see how the mix would work. So with, you know, it's almost like design thinking, but you can think of a lot of tools that can be born out of these different models and then people can take and, uh, and apply them. That I would be very excited to see, to see more of that. And as you were finishing off there, the thought that comes to mind is the more practical application of, of creative thinking tools and right. so on. Is that something that would form part of it? I, for me, definitely would. And, and I think our mission as a community is not to have an ivory tower type of reflection. I think it's not by accident that possibility studies kind of rose together from all these colleagues and, and uh, networks. During the pandemic, it was, it was more or less kind of at the onset of the pandemic. I mean, an agent of impossibility, and God knows we're continuing a lot with, with those impossibilities, um, that, that gives rise not to just blind optimism. It's not about hope and creativity will change the world, but a real reflection on what is what is our role, what could we do, and something we didn't talk about much but we need to is the ethics of possibility. What should we do? Yes, we can have multiple tools to envision so many futures, do so many things, but should we enact all of those futures? I think ethics is a, has a huge part to play as well in, in the field. And that hints very much at uh, some of the, the, the dark side of, of, of creativity, mm. that uh, I could be very creative for good, but I could also be very creative in terms of developing new approaches to, to terrorism or Absolutely. to um, weapons of mass destruction and so on. Right, right. So it's even a whole literature now called malevolent creativity, exactly about, or negative creativity, exactly about that. And I think it's it's wonderful that people woke up to the fact that we were kind of romanticizing a bit blindly these, these ideas. You know, I, I've, I've been at different festivals where slogans come up, creativity is the cure, you know, but <laughs> what is the problem, you know? And, and sometimes creativity can be the problem, not only the cure. So I think, I think we need, to, we need to, to pause a little bit. And, and if, we, if we have this, you know, this kind of ethics of, of self-other kind of relations, the responsibility, shared responsibility for the future, I think that can be such a wonderful guiding point. And, and you know, 
more and more possibility can lead to environmental destruction, to inequality, but it can also be the reverse. So the question becomes, how can we use these tools to create these other worlds that I'm sure you know, all of us want to see? The question I was going to ask next, I'm going to ask it even though we, I'm not sure it's necessarily the right question, but it's essentially, you know, for, for any leaders or, or managers who are listening to the podcast, you know, how could they practically apply some of the ideas or, or concepts of, of possibility studies? I, I'm not sure from what you're saying if there is an easy, simple three steps to heaven. Well, it's not because just possibility studies is, is so wide, right? So then, then we have to zoom in. So let's take my theory of the possible, which I, I, I sketched a little bit about multiplicity. So the core of it is difference. And a lot of it is about managing difference and how do we deal with difference, right? So speaking of three steps, I sometimes teach these. I'm, I'm a bit ashamed that I call them the three steps because I, in, to my mind, nothing has three steps, right? But anyway, um, but it's really about awareness of difference, uh, valuing difference and acting on difference, right? So this is quite concrete, it's quite practical. So awareness of difference sounds um, lovely and, and sounds like something that every open-minded person does, but it is one of the hardest things to do. You know, we have a lot of evidence from cognitive science to philosophy to, to all sorts of fields that talk about how we resist unfamiliarity. You know, we, we almost have this cognitive orientation of appropriating the unfamiliar, making it familiar. We like familiar worlds. We like to be right. We like to be liked. We, 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 we like to, be, to have our identity. So actually break away and, and really noticing difference, hearing that discordant voice or not purging your social media feed, right? And, and not, not to be troubled by all sorts of views is an effort, you know? So awareness of difference, you can already do a whole training program only on that. The second point is valuing difference. Okay, you're aware that things exist. Valuing doesn't mean agreeing with. That's that's a huge thing that people sometimes make the mistake and say, well, I'm very open-minded. I, I, I can see the, the point of everyone. Well, we shouldn't actually going back to the ethics of possibility when someone denies climate change or or you know god knows what other ridiculous beliefs or spreads misinformation we cannot adopt a view in which well there are two points of view everyone has a point no i think what is important for valuing difference is to understand how perspectives come about i mean if you deal with misinformation you you can't only say let's let's pump up correct information will eradicate it you need to know what was the root what what do people expect and once you need to inhabit a bit that perspective to come up with a Solution. So valuing is really a lot of perspective taking and empathy, and it's not about agreement. So that's a second tool. The third one is acting on difference. That's that's kind of hard, especially for businesses, because they often resist change, sadly. You know, they they, they promote it and, and verbally and declaratively they they say and put it on, on leaflets and all and on buildings. But it's hard to act on this difference. So that means that you take the next step. Okay, we listen to people. We know we, we map up the field. Then what? Then what do we do with it? My favorite example comes from education because that's that's an area that I... And, and that's an area of application, isn't it? Because education can be children, but also businesses and so on. And I like to think about what, how do teachers react in, in classrooms to different points of view? You know, do they pick up on them? Uh, so are they even aware that someone said something different or there's no time? you know, no resources, no, no nothing. Second, do they try to make an example out of that? I think teachers and sometimes maybe managers, they're trained to, to, to believe that being right is a virtue. You know, we, we live in worlds of education and maybe management as well, in which, um, you know, not knowing is a weakness. It's actually a, a sign that, that something is wrong. So you always should know. That is a huge problem for creativity, possibility, and all the rest, isn't it? So um, so the, the, the second point is, does the teacher or manager want to just make an example 
out of someone who had a different point of view. And the third one is, what do we learn beyond that moment? Can we implement a change? Can we make a shift? Can we can we teach differently when when you know? So I think that is my interest. If I were to um, to think of an applied tool, would be to go through these steps and see what comes out and kind of guide people through these these processes. As we're finishing up, then, if uh, if any listeners wanted to find out more about your work and and, and research, wh- where could they uh, go? Oh, that's <laughs> well. They they could they could Google Possibility Studies Network. Uh, there is a website. We have a conference coming up in July 2023, depending when people listen to this, um, in in Dublin at at DCU, where we we really bring together all of these different facets. It's really about cultivating the possible in education and society. And uh, yes, beyond the network, there is an encyclopedia, the Palgrave Encyclopedia of the possible um, and uh, and there is a journal a sage journal called possibility studies and society uh, that at the moment all the articles are are freely available so I, I would encourage people to look for that and definitely um, get in touch I think you know um, I'd be happy to talk to anyone interested that sounds great Professor Vlad Glaveno of Dublin City University thank you very much for your time thank you so much thanks, thanks.